Good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today's show, we are going to cover some API security topics, uh, things about cybersecurity insurance applications and what's happening in the news associated with that. And I don't mean like the news around and about, but I'm talking feet on the street news. Uh, some other cybersecurity musings and, uh, you know, we'll see where we go from there. So let's just get started with some kind of cybersecurity musings. I'll start you off with some entertainment. So I uh, was recently contacted by uh, somebody who wanted to secure their RMM and uh, make it externally accessible. Now, for those of you who don't know, an RMM is a remote monitoring and management tool in 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 kind of the cybersecurity space, we call it a pre-installed remote access Trojan. <laughs> there are many people in the cybersecurity space who think that RMM as a paradigm is dead. And I wouldn't disagree. The challenge we all face is that there are some real issues with trying to find uh, alternatives to RMMs. So, you know, you're, you're faced with you need an RMM for some things, but then you're also faced with the difficulty of having secure communications between the agents and the RMM server, as well as then difficulties in uh, secure access to the web management interface of the RMM. So uh, this person who contacted me they they said that they really just wanted some assistance with uh, correcting or reviewing and correcting the external access to their RMM. Now, you know, my personal opinion is that the RMM shouldn't be externally accessible, <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that what happened to people last July, July 2021, you know, when they got breached? Their Kaseya VSA servers got breached and... It wasn't because they had high-level network layer security around their RMM, that's for sure. So, you know, I'm glad some people are asking about that, but I think there's still, um, there's still a great deal of misinformation out there as, as to how you should be securing your RMM. Like, I'll give you a great example of something that should be done that probably the vast majority of people are not doing is do you have that RMM sitting on a completely isolated VLAN? And when I mean completely isolated, I'm talking about it is like a custom security zone. You don't let any packets in and out of that VLAN unless you've specifically crafted the ACLs for that. And then you're doing IDS, IPS, application control, logging, monitoring, alarming, the whole nine yards. You're inspecting every single packet in and out of there. And then you're only allowing the management interface of that to be accessible from other vetted tier zero devices. Uh, and then in terms of like agent check-in, I think a lot of the RMMs that are on the market, they have agents checking in with the RMM on the same port and protocol as what the management interface is. So if they want to have 
devices which are on dynamic IP addresses, are on home networks, you know, are roaming about to be able to check in with the RMM, well, they've got a problem because they can't create IP access control restrictions that restrict the connectivity into that RMM, even just for agent check-in purposes. <clears throat> and now you may say, okay, well, we could put a SASE on everybody's computer, and you could do that, and that's a rather expensive proposition to do so. Um, that helps the situation, right? A SASE does help the situation because at least at that point in time, you're not having the RMM agent check-in port and protocol open to any external. So there are ways to solve this problem, but inherently RMMs, the conventional RMMs that are out there, and even a lot of the modern RMMs, they just really don't meet the security criteria, at least not by people like myself. I know some people who think uh, the Enable product is a, is a good RMM. Uh, I'm really not a fan of it. Uh, I think NASA uses it now. So, you know, for whatever that's worth, I think basically NASA decided that they, they were going to use something other than Kaseya VSA because they lost complete and utter faith in Kaseya at that point in time. And I don't really, uh, <laughs> I don't blame them for that assessment considering what happened last year. And, so there are still struggles that anyone that has a RMM, they struggle with putting a web application firewall in front of that traffic. So there are some URL rewriting type of things you can do on the inbound HTTPS requests. And that can help in terms of looking at it and saying if it is a maliciously crafted request, then that doesn't match the criteria of what should be allowed through. So there are some, there is some definite validity to that approach. It is not a panacea, though. I mean, I, th I think that really web application firewalling is probably the most, if not the most effective uh, approach to protecting web applications. You know, firewalling in general, when you're, when you're looking at firewalling as a concept, it's a concept that says we're not going to allow packets through unless they look, smell, and, you know, quack. You know, they, they got to sound like, they got to walk like, they got to look like the thing we expect to be seeing. So if it's if it doesn't match the patterns we expect, then it's got to be something naughty. So we're just going to whack it. And so web application firewalls are are great from that perspective, and they are looking at uh, the actual um, requests at a level that like a, a packet filter firewall or even a proxy-based firewall uh, have, has some limitations in doing it. Now, one of the things you have to be aware of is that web application firewalls are very contingent 
upon knowing what is a legitimate request? You know, how does it validate, oh, this is not a legitimate request, so therefore I'm going to block it? Well, it has to know what is a legitimate request. So now you realize that it's very difficult to put a web application firewall in front of something that the software vendor themselves has not worked with the WAF vendor to create the rule set for. So in the case of like, you know, an RMM, a service like Cloudflare has historically not uh, worked well um, without that partnership being in place and that that partnership is um, the, the partnership of, okay, we at the software vendor are going to sit down and meet with Cloudflare and tell Cloudflare our exact code of what a legitimate request of all these different types of requests look like, right? I mean, only the software company is going to know that. And that's because those, that's very deeply associated with, you know, the interworkings, the, the internal guts of how their application works. So um, <clears throat> the, that is something that everybody should be looking into. Is there a WAF that is available that you can put in front of the things you are going to expose to the Internet? I would not ever recommend exposing the management interface of a critical admin system to the internet. Uh, there are certainly uh, SaaS-based solutions that are out there that you know clearly are exposed to the internet. It is not your responsibility to maintain the security of those. That is the SaaS provider's responsibility. Do they have WAFs in front of what they're hosting? I'm pretty darn sure they do. In the vast majority of cases, yes. And then you have to do your part to make sure that you're using good, complex, lengthy passwords that are unique, and then you're doing multi-factor authentication. Okay, so let's move on to, um, I'm just going to throw out what I think is now the most effective offer out there for business owners and executive management teams. And here's my offer. Show me your last cybersecurity insurance application that you supplied to the broker. And let me sit down with you and talk to you about, about that. That's it. That's my offer. Because I'm guessing that you may not have the most accurate understanding about what was going on with that application. And I have to say the last 25 to 30 of these that I've looked at, the executive management team or the business owner had no idea what was going on there. Someone else completed the application for them, did not provide them all of the proof documentation that they needed in order to be making an informed decision and then they just signed it and so what we have here is a situation where the executive management teams or business owners are being asked 
to accept all of the liability uh, of signing that application. And it's a huge liability. But they're being asked to do that in a terribly uninformed status, terribly, terribly uninformed status. I haven't seen anybody doing the kind of proof documentation that we do. So if anybody out there is an executive management team member for a business uh, or a, um, you know, a business owner themselves and you're interested in having that conversation, by all means, give me a call. Let's talk about it. The number is 262-553-6510, or you can just go to qpcsecurity.com and you can find the phone number there. So that's just qpcsecurity.com, real easy. All right, let's move on to API security now. API security is going to be the next, I mean, this is next level stuff. This is the thing that everybody ought to actually be thinking about and talking about right now, and they're not. So uh, this whole topic of external vulnerability scanning is really coming to a head now. And of course, you all have heard about supply chain risk management, third-party risk management. And, you know, everybody's being asked to implement API connectors between either cloud-to-cloud things or premise-to-cloud or cloud-to-premise, right? And yet, in the vast majority of cases... I'm not seeing the software companies that are asking for the, this connectivity. I am not seeing they, them come forward with saying, oh, yes, we've had a third-party risk assessment. And uh, by the way, here are the results of our third-party risk assessment in the last 12 months. And then they, they have no statements about what they're doing about software development lifecycle. They have no actual like hardening guide for the implementation of their uh, API connectivity. Uh, in many cases, their install guides don't exist or they were written only for internal use. Uh, I have seen crazy things from enormous companies that have 8,000 employees where they're literally telling me to download stuff from some dude's Google Drive. And there's just no way, there is no way that I'm going to download some stuff from some dude's Google Drive and install it on one of my client's servers. There's no realm under which that meets supply chain risk management practices. <laughs> but yet I've seen this. I've seen it at least five times with different software companies. It's like, really? <laughs> really? You know, you can't come up with a way, like, I don't know, a client portal or something like that where we log in to the software company's website and we securely download the thing. And, you know, they don't have MD5 hashes or anything, right? So <laughs> it's like these people have never heard of supply chain risk management. And, uh, and yet... You know, they're like, ah, you know, we're the super hot, big, bad boy, super, super special software company. And it's like, no, you're clowns. <laughs> you're just clowns. You know, I mean, I've talked to some of these companies about OWASP API 
security best best practices and standards and they're like what you know and they look at me like I'm a three-headed alien <laughs> I'm like how many how many software developers do you have here how many billions of dollars do you have and you can't seem to understand that you shouldn't be putting a piece of software or a SaaS solution out there that you haven't vetted okay so this is where it gets starts to get real fun you know, I mean, a lot of what I do is I, I think it's it's simultaneously on it's kind of like a teeter totter. It's it's hideously frustrating uh, on one hand because of all the just incompetence and gross negligence that exists. And then simultaneously, it's hysterically funny. You know, it's just it's preposterously funny that these big ginormous companies that have been in business 25, 30 years you know, making billions of dollars and they've got 8,000 employees and they think they're the super hot, bad mojo. And yet, you know, I just little old tiny me, I try to find vulns, you know, vulnerabilities in their public facing infrastructure. And, you know, I mean, I come up with pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of issues, you know, and then I reach out to their company and I say, well, Hey, uh, do you happen to have somebody at the company who's actually responsible for vulnerability management? Because I have tangible things that someone could and should be actioning. Like I've found vulnerabilities in public facing infrastructure, critical infrastructure that have CVEs from 2011. Now, if you don't know what a CVE is, it's basically a critical vulnerability. So when a critical vulnerability has been open and known since 2011, and it still is not patched, I have one assessment of that. That is that that company is committing gross negligence. Oh yeah, gross negligence. Because if you've got 8,000 employees, you've got a lot of money, and you cannot possibly make a defensible argument that says we don't have the resources to assign a couple people and to employ some automated scanning to scan our junk and then assign some people to fix the problem. You know, you can't make a defensible argument that says we don't have the resources for that. I mean, it's the same sort of horse hockey when, uh, you know, Experian or Equifax or TransUnion or some behemoth company like that says, oh, we can't patch our servers, you know, we don't have the resources to do that. You know, it's like, it's just not a defensible argument. Okay. And I mean, if I, if I was a judge, I would just have to, I would just really have to choke back the laughter. I mean, it'd just be, it, it's just preposterous to suggest that they don't have the resources to take care of business properly. So um, I, I want to wrap up the show here, you know, the last segment here on what on earth can you do about this as a practical approach for defending yourself as uh, a consumer of or of these, you know, APIs and web applications and SaaS applications and so forth. And then also uh, in terms of what can you do 
for real practical terms of third-party risk management, supply chain risk management, you know, when you're you're put in a difficult position of, you know, you're the size of a bug and then you're dealing with an 8,000-person company who, uh, you know, just really your alarm bells go off and those alarm bells tell you that they don't really know what they're doing. You know, when they can't tell you how their stuff complies with OWASP API security standards and best practices, then I have to question, has anybody actually thought about that? Because if they don't actually have a statement that they've put together that says, hey, this is how our stuff complies with OWASP API standards and best practices, then what proof do I have as a consumer of their services that they've even thought about that. You know, and I ask them questions like, help me understand what you're doing to prevent SQL injection attacks coming through your API into my premise database. Explain to me. And they've got no answer at all. No answer. None. You know, so like there are things that you can ask them and then your smell test should go like beep, 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 like alarm bells going off, okay? So uh, there's a company out there called Wallarm that just, I think, is doing an astonishingly rock-solid, phenomenal job of API security assessment. Uh, They are also doing um, tons of other assessments with regards to web applications and um, basically... My opinion is that if you have this desire or need to do supply chain risk management and assessing the impact of you hooking up a piece of software to your premise infrastructure or even a cloud-to-cloud infrastructure, uh, and you're trying to do this kind of third-party risk assessment Uh, vendor risk assessment, API security risk assessment, web application risk assessment. You're trying to do this stuff before you turn these services on. I would absolutely recommend you just go get a a Wallarm account and pay them because it's just phenomenal, the quality of the tool. It's doing things that there is no other tool in the entire world that's doing at this point in time. They have phenomenal education on their website, and uh, they've got some excellent publications such as the Top 5 Challenges in Protecting APIs. They've also got uh, an API security checklist And so even if you're just somebody who's trying to learn more about API security, I would strongly recommend you go out to Wallarm's website. That's W-A-L-L-A-R-M. Go out to their website and uh, grab their documents on API security and and such. Um, I saw a presentation that uh, Wallarm did with uh, Randy Franklin Smith which was incredible. Uh, It was an incredible presentation on API security and the best practices for protecting modern applications against emerging threats. And uh, it was just absolutely phenomenal. I cannot say enough positive things about it. The 
the presenter who's one of the uh, top person, top personnel over there at Wallarm put together just a phenomenal presentation, extremely educational and just, I mean, it's just mind blowingly good. If you want to see that, go out to Randy Franklin Smith's website and go look for the replay on that. Uh, Randy Franklin Smith does have it available where you can watch his webinars after the fact. So uh, take a look at that if you're if you're interested uh, in that detail. But uh, so then I started using Wallarm, and um, <laughs> it's astonishingly good. It's it's I'm not gonna say it's uh, you know it's I'm not gonna say that it's like better than uh, OpenVos. I think it does different things than OpenVos. So in terms of like external vuln scanning, you know, vulnerability scanning, uh, OpenVos has a great deal of value still. And I, I think that they, uh, I don't know, I can't say yet to, to what degree there's overlap. I think there is some overlap. And I'm not going to say that Wallarm does everything that OpenVos does, you know, that OpenVos does. But um, OpenVos, I think one of the best places to get an OpenVos subscription is with a Hacker Target. And, you know, you have to program it correctly and you have to be able to understand what to do with the reports and such and such. You know, there's, it's not really, I mean, a lot of these things, these are not things that are for, you know, the average Joe. Uh, these are the types of tools that are best suited to people like myself. And so what internal IT departments should be doing is they should be partnering with their virtual information security officer like me and saying, you know, hey, uh, what can we do in order to put together an external and an internal vulnerability management system? So um, because, you know, the, the answer to that is uh, it's not all about strictly setting up scanning. There's a lot of external and internal vulnerability management that is process, procedure, and frankly, it's my human brain power that finds the issues. And there is never going to be a tool that you can buy and then utilize and that it will just magically show you all the vulnerabilities that exist in your environment. Like um, just yesterday, I did a, an audit for a manufacturing, uh, an international manufacturing company. And in 45 minutes, I ended up producing a 16-page report, and that 16-page report just was like, I mean, it's, it's basically 12 months worth of remediation work. I mean, I'm dead serious. You, you look at it and go like, oh my gosh, there's just so much that's messed up here. And so somebody who has the kind of uh, experience and expertise that I have is able to look at something very quickly and get to the root nugget of the problem and then visualize and strategize on how are those problems going to get solved and then what projects should we be doing first, uh, prioritizing the risks that exist, uh, prioritizing the vulnerabilities, and then also putting whatever the fixes are, 
putting them in place in a way that supports the ongoing and emerging uh, cybersecurity insurance requirements and compliance requirements, audit, uh, management, just, I mean, you, you really you really are in a bit of a difficult situation if you're trying to do this exclusively with internal IT. Internal IT is very, very important and valuable as part of uh, any sort of a solution because they're oftentimes doing a lot of the heavy lifting. They're doing the day-to-day -day support of the personnel. Uh, but it is very difficult for them to have the breadth and depth of experience and expertise to be the sole source of the solutions to the problems. So it's excruciatingly important that partnerships be made. And, and in fact, just yesterday, I had a phone call from uh, an IT director of a school district. And, you know, he wanted some kind of, you know, point solution help. And I'm like, that's not really going to solve the problem. If you want to solve the problem for the school district, we need to enter into a more expansive relationship where I'm the information security officer for the school district. And we start to engage the board of directors and the executive management team. Well, that's it for today's show. I hope you enjoyed it.